Reclaiming the narrative is so important because it teaches us what we're made of, where we come from, and what we're capable of. And then as artists, especially Black artists, we teach with our work, we keep company with our work, we inspire movements with our work. Visual art. It's something that has always played a fundamental role in Black movements. The Harlem Renaissance, the Black Arts Movement, the Black Lives Matter movement of today. In each era, artists have offered their vision and skill, wielding the power of art to inspire and uplift, to educate and communicate, to shift Black consciousness towards a direction of love, self-respect, healing, and freedom. I'm Jay from Push Black, and today on Black History Year, we're talking Black art and liberation. Now, whether you're an artist or not, this episode's for you, because in some way or another, art has influenced your life, guaranteed. Maybe you grew up with famous black paintings like Ernie Barnes' The Sugar Shack in your home. Or maybe you've passed by a building with a mural honoring a black legend. However you've experienced it, art is all around you, and there's value in embracing it. To break it down for us, we're talking with Rosalind McGarry, a Compton-based artist and producer whose solo and collaborative work has been featured in shows and museums nationwide, including the Los Angeles Museum of African Art, Hampton University's Art Museum, the New York National Black Fine Arts Show, and many others. In 2016, she founded Sepia Collective, an artist-run organization whose mission is to engage artists, build community, and empower youth. Later, we'll talk with her about the collective's iconic Black Panther art exhibitions, done in collaboration with former Panthers who are still using art to serve the people and create change. This is an exciting conversation about the power of Black creativity. Let's get to it. Rosalind, what does Black liberation look like to you? To me, Black liberation looks like freedom. Freedom to express as an artist the way I'd like to express on any given day, at any given moment. Freedom to care for each other, care about each other. Freedom of movement, to go where we please, when we please, how we please. And to be able to share knowledge about our culture with each other uninhibited. And how do you see your work as working towards Black liberation? My work with Iconic Black Panther is threefold. And I'm learning, we're learning as we go, right? Um, it kind of develops and then we look back at it and say, wow, this is developing in this direction. But I will say that um, Iconic Black Panther, it's a series of multi-city art exhibitions. We've done three already. The first was in Oakland in 2016, the second one um, in Los Angeles and the third in Chicago. The fourth was to be this year in New York. I say multi-city exhibitions because each exhibition, it's not a traveling exhibition. Each exhibition is different and reflects the city and the city's history with artists, with cultural movements, with social equity movements. Each city has its own personality and those personalities are able to express in the production of these art exhibitions. So I would say that reclaiming our narrative and in this case, the narrative of the Black Panther Party and artists and educators coming together 
and making space for that to happen would be number one. Number two would be moving into the educational space. We work with uh, educators in every city that we show, we exhibit, and they bring some portion or aspect of our exhibits to their campuses and then build programming around it to engage their students. So I think that's a huge, huge part of Iconic Black Panther that, you know, has developed organically from the beginning of us doing these exhibits that I didn't necessarily know was as possible as it is. And then raising money for Black Panther alumni in need. There still are Black Panther political prisoners in prison right now. Some have been in prison over 45 years and raising money to support them and their families. And also when they come out, raising money for support. So those are kind of the three ways I think that these art exhibitions work towards Black liberation. So you mentioned in terms of Black liberation, freedom of expression is important to you. Can you dive into that a little more? Why is that important to you and why should it be important to all of us in the community, artists or or non-artists? As an artist, you know, as a, as a Black artist, as a Black woman artist, you find uh, when you're very young, when you're starting out, that you have expectations from your community, you have expectations from your family. Usually those expectations are don't become an artist, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have these, you have, you have expectations that you bump into, right? So freedom of expression evolved for me from man, you know, sometimes I just want to paint a flower. I just want to, you know, I just want to draw a flower. That's it. But you can also be judged like, well, what kind of artist are you? You're a Black woman and you you don't have nothing to say. My work has always been very, my personal work has been very private. And it really is about, I, I call it the emotional layers of being a Black woman and kind of navigating different spaces as a Black woman in this society, in this time. I found that producing art exhibitions is in itself a work of art um, and it's a collaborative work of art. So you're working with other people and that expression is, I believe more important because it reaches more people. And it also empowers the artists who are working together and the educators that are working together and the producers that are working together. You know, whoever's coming together to kind of produce these exhibitions that we have defined as, you know, hey, we're going to do this thing and we're going to bring people together to talk about things that maybe are uncomfortable to talk about. We're going to engage, you know, the community in these ways with programming. We're going to, you know, and what do we want to do? How do we want to do it? And kind of having those conversations where we get together and say, first and foremost, what do we as Black people, it's used mostly Black people with Iconic Black Panther, of course, um, what do we want to do? What do we want to say? And how do we want to say it? And starting there is liberating. What led you to create Iconic Black Panther? Uh, I would have to go back to probably uh, 2013. 2013, a group of four curators got together and we produced a show called Rise, Love Revolution, the Black Panther Party. And we held it in LA. 
and turnout was amazing. Uh, and it was a it was a fundraiser. You know, we planned from the beginning that it would be a fundraiser. And at that time, it was the largest group exhibition interpreting the Black Panther Party that had ever been done. And so the turnout was so great and there was such possibility with it, but it was exhausting. You know, it was it was all those things when you start a new thing, but it was it was amazing and it was it was full of love and it was beautiful. And so we all disbanded after that. And it was a couple of uh, Black Panthers who had worked with us, Gene Washington and Hank Jones, who came to me ultimately and said, hey, we need to keep doing this. This is important. And so they're kind of the the fathers of iconic Black Panther. And so I started off with plans to produce iconic and um, I knew that I could not do it alone. And I had plans to start Sepia. My art organization is based in Compton and it centers artists of color. And so I had plans to do that. And this just became the right time. We opened in 2016 uh, in Oakland for the 50th anniversary of the Black Panther Party. That's amazing. So can you describe what people will see at the iconic Black Panther exhibit? So our our plan next time is New York. So basically, um, the first thing that we do is seek out a space. So some amazing space that can hopefully house the people who will come, the thousands of people who will come, but also the wonderful work of over 50 artists. So what we do is we seek out a curator, a local curator for each exhibit. Our curators to date have been women, and I I wanna carry on that tradition, women of color. And so we seek out a curator, and that curator has, of course, a relationship with local artists. The curator chooses artists, but we also put out a call to artists to kind of level the field. We like a variety of artists from well-established to brand new. Our exhibit in Chicago, our youngest artist was 22. Our oldest artist was 96. And so face, curator, and then dream, right? Then imagination. The Black Panther alumni in each city weighs in from the first meeting that we have about what they'd like to say, what they'd like to see, and how they'd like to participate, join with us, partner with us. And and those conversations usually involve outreach and our programming. So um, when people come to the exhibit, what they see is an expression, not just of the artists that are interpreting either the Black Panther Party or their own activism. They're communicating about things that they're involved in or want to highlight right? It's also the exhibition space and the people that are involved there. It's uh, educators and universities, local universities that involve themselves and members of the Black Panther Party. And I saw that Emory Douglas has been involved as well. And that's someone that uh, as soon as I, I learned about him and his work, I've been trying to learn as much as I can ever since. Very inspiring stuff, I think, for any creative person who is trying to say something. Uh, what was it like working with him on this project? And for our listeners, who was Emory Douglas and what was his role in the 
Panthers? I get sent to different Black Panthers, and it really does feel to me the same way that it feels, you know, when you go into a place where you haven't been in the South, maybe, and they're like, okay, well, you got some cousins down there, so you need to go and you need to say hi. And so Emory Douglas, he was the Minister of Culture for the Black Panther Party. He is an artist, and you can see his work on every or almost every uh, Black Panther newsletter, and then within the newsletters as well. He views art as a teaching tool and a call to action. So he knew that he was using his work to communicate in very plain terms to people who either may not have time to read or could not read well to break down what was going on, what was in that newsletter and what the Black Panther Party was working on or communicating about at that time and still today. He still um, works. And so he's accessible to artists and activists all over the Bay Area. The first time I met him, I met him at a fundraiser. He was sitting, eating, and he just said, yeah, sit down, have a seat. Let's, you know, let's talk. I told him, you know, I wanted to do these exhibits. And so he um, hit me to the history of some other exhibits that have happened about the Black Panther Party and how they looked. And, you know, when they were art exhibits, they naturally centered around Emory and Emory's work. And so what we were doing on the scale that we were doing it hasn't been done in quite that way. And so his guidance and all other Black Panther alumni guidance, as far as just kind of keeping to the history or no, this this didn't happen that way. It happened this way. So it's really like a dream come true. Mm. But yeah, that's Emory Douglas. He's he's our he's our intersection of activism and arts. He is that personified. So you mentioned previously reclaiming the narrative. Uh, speak more on that. Why is that important for Black artists, for us as a people? And in what ways is, is this exhibit or your work working towards that? Well, reclaiming the narrative, I think in this particular case, of course, is beyond important because we see the impact of others controlling that narrative about the Black Panther Party we see the damage that it's done, the complete rendering of families and communities um, because of the vilification of the Black Panther Party. And yet it's a group of people who I think average age 19, when they joined, when they started their work, um, there's no corner of the globe that hasn't been impacted you know, inspired, influenced by those then young people who I'll say most of them are still doing community work. They're still working for the people. And so they were cast as people who just wanted to kill white people. They weren't cast or acknowledged as people who stood 
in the gap for their community, you know, for, for other people, they, they created 23 survival programs. I've been told now it's over 23, so I don't have the full list. They said about feeding, protecting our communities, educating our communities, you know, studying sickle cell disease in our communities, starting clinics in our communities, you know, all those things, you know, they were doing and they were doing it and having to protect each other at the same time. So reclaiming the narrative around that is, you know, so important because it teaches us what we're made of, where we come from, right? And what we're capable of. And then as artists, you know, I think that, you know, artists, especially Black artists, Brown artists, we teach, you know, with our work or we keep company with our work or we inspire movements with our work. And so, you know, when we look at what's happening with Black Lives Matter and how they've been vilified over the years and, you know, it's kind of the same thing happening all over again. You know, there's this this force for good. All they started with was saying Black Lives Matter, right? And now all of a sudden, I don't know exactly when it happened, but now all of a sudden they're a terrorist organization, right? So you see how these things happen in real time when you and when you learn about how those things happen to the Black Panther Party, it becomes necessary to talk about it, to keep those conversations going and to engage, you know, especially young people in those conversations. And then it becomes important to create space for us and, you know, as artists and each other so that we can continue to do that. So what is the role of the Black artists and Black art in the Black liberation struggle? I think that's a choice. You know, I think that artists have to make that choice. And I, and I really strongly stand by an artist's choice to involve themselves or not involve themselves and to whatever, you know, to whatever level that they choose. I really, that I feel that very, very strongly. But I also feel like as Black artists, you inevitably are going to bump up against some some challenges and some struggles, you know, because you are Black, because you are Brown, because you are a woman, because you are all those things. You're going to bump up against struggle. And, and those things tend to kind of hone us into activists in our own ways. You know, I, I think for me, it's producing exhibits is when I'm able to let my activism, my expression free in that regard. But when I'm painting, I never looked at myself as an, as an activist. You know, I looked at myself as, as someone who just wanted to talk about these things I was feeling. But inevitably, other people who are touched by what you're doing are going to come and say, you have done this for me. You have helped me with this. And so I don't know how we can avoid it. You know, I don't know how um, Black artists can avoid some type of activism, even if it's just advocacy for other artists who've gone through some of the things that they've gone through. During the Black arts movement, there was a push by those involved, I think, 
most notably Larry Neal and Amiri Baraka to call for black artists to reject European standards and create our own in terms of art, artwork, and creativity. What are your thoughts? Well, when you talk about liberation, I think that rejecting European standards is absolutely liberating. I think everybody should try it. (laughs) I I think it's absolutely liberating. Personally, what's been really liberating for me as an artist producing these exhibits and also working in my own city now in Compton to create arts programming is that I am truly interested in having these conversations amongst ourselves. You know, I want to talk about these things amongst us. I want to learn from Black artists who were there before me and and how did they deal with these things and what was this like? And when I put pen to paper, I am most assuredly talking about what my idea of beautiful is. And, and so I think that as much as we are the product of this society, there's so much within us as expressives and creatives that we want to get out. We owe it to ourselves, I'll say, to throw off all those dictates. So interested in what artists you look up to, who are some of your favorites that you think are doing things in a way you admire or even aspire to? That's a, that's a hard one off the top of my head. I mean, of course, Emory Douglas, Dr. Samela Lewis, of course, Elizabeth Catlett, Charles Alston's work, and Tanksley. I don't know. I could probably go on and on and on. I could go on and on. Are there any sort of unifying themes across the folks you just mentioned that make you drawn towards their work or the type that they do, I guess, as as a group of those those folks you mentioned? I mean, I'm I'm an emotional painter, you know? Mm. I'm an emotional painter and emotional drawer, so I can't I, I I keep coming back to artists who move me. Probably I'm seeing some things I aspire to. I see the simplest stroke captures immense beauty and emotion. And I don't really know how to put that into words, but it can be the simplest thing. And I aspire to that. I want people to cry. Mm. (laughs) They see one stroke (laughs) that I've done. You know, but but, you know, really the least the least amount of strokes, actions towards whatever piece, you know, and that piece captured the the entirety of whatever it is I want to, you know, say. So I think that that those are artists who who do that. Almost like a minimalist approach to it. Yeah. Yeah. The art world is pretty white, like overwhelmingly white. What has been your experience navigating that? You know, it's funny. I am not the poster child for navigating the the art world. (laughs) (laughs) First and foremost, I did not go to art school. I, I always drew all my life. And it was my solace as a young person. I was an introvert. And so I, I took art courses in college, but I didn't, I didn't go on. And I didn't have the confidence when I was there to major in art. 
I was like, maybe I'll work in a museum or work in a gallery. You know, I was kind of, I just wanted to be around it. I didn't have that confidence to say I'm an artist. And it wasn't until a couple of years after I graduated that I started my career. But before that, I worked at Sotheby's and I worked at a local Black gallery in Oakland, Samuel's Gallery. And I remember when I worked at Sotheby's, I was interning. I interned at Sotheby's in San Francisco. And I remember looking over the magazines and I loved all the catalogs, you know, for the exhibits, you know, but they had everything, everything, everything. They had Chinese snuff bottles and mid-century planes and they had everything from art to jewelry to 17th century Dutch masters. And so I remember one day asking the director, where is the Black art catalog? And she said to me, hmm, I don't know. Maybe look in the primitive mm. section. Well, So I think that I've been happiest when I don't consider the art world when making decisions. And I get happier as time goes by. <laughs> I get happier as time goes by. I don't care to um, necessarily impress in that regard or succeed necessarily in that way. I love starting with the question, what is it that you want to do? And just doing that you know, and kind of keeping the voices out of my head as much as possible. Cause I know they're there. I know they're, they're, they're always there, but I, I'm interested in, in having those conversations amongst my community, my family, my people. Yeah. I love that. I've had a similar experience. So I went to school for filmmaking and I had a film of mine. I didn't realize it was an art film to they were like, hey, you have this art film. I was, I just thought it was a, a film film, but oh, <laughs> it ended, wow. up in, uh, ended up in a couple exhibits when I got there and, and looked at the makeup of the room and the people who were trying to have conversations about it. It's like, I don't, I'm not really feeling this. I don't want to explain it in these ways. I want people to feel it. And so I felt, as you mentioned, most comfortable, most fulfilled in our community sharing that work and that's who it's meant for. I assume that what you shared and what I shared is pretty common. Do you hear that type of sentiment from folks that you're also in communication with that are Black artists? I do. I absolutely do. And I also hear, you know, conversations and, and witness, you know, movement where artists are, you know, striving for that kind of it you know, that it factor, you know, striving to position themselves to kind of be the darling of the art world and working at how they've, you know, learned to present and work. And I get it. I love and I welcome anyone, you know, who feels something when looking at my work. And I love it that it has that effect, you know, and I do feel like it's it's meant to keep company. But I understand on a very deep level that my work comes from a place where, you know, my people is all I need. I think it's true. You know, art is for the people. It is not a luxury. I kind of want to start there. Like, mm. I don't believe that art is a luxury item. 
a black artist will do a piece about sharecroppers and that piece will then sell for a million dollars. You know what I mean? And it's, it's like, okay, that energy that's in that piece is now hanging somewhere. It's blessing some space, you know, that doesn't understand it completely. And that's why I believe in prints. <laughs> I believe mm-hmm. because I believe that we should have we should have access to the work by our artists. I mean, that's what it's for. I believe in public art for the same reason. You know, in what ways are you seeing folks creating their own table? Um, in addition to obviously what you're doing with uh, iconic Black Panther. There's so many people <laughs> doing so many things. I mean, you know, it's like technology being what it is it's like every year is a new era (laughs) like people are describing and i mean they're figuring out ways to exhibit and share their work that don't involve the same middle entities you know social media being what it is and and how it evolves and how artists you know utilize it to share their work, we can have the exact conversations that we want to have. We're not building something for an Oscar or those particular accolades. We're building something to reach our people. And then it's accessible by everyone in some way, fashion, or form via social media. I don't know how it's going to end up, but I feel very strongly that the powers that be are going to have to meet us where we are. They're going to have to meet us where we are, as opposed to, um, you know, what has been happening, which is we meet them where they are and satisfy, you know, whatever those, you know, kind of elusive checkoff points are to be what we're supposed to be so that we can, you know, we're nice and polished and pretty and we can, we sell, we're marketable. This is what I am witnessing. This is what I see. And I think that that's going to be a huge shift. The social dictates will be dictated by the people. Was there artwork in your home growing up? Were you influenced by art? And I asked because I know in every Black household I grew up in, there was some of the the classics, you know, a painting of Martin Luther King or the one with the the two black hands, uh, one reaching up, one reaching down. I forget what it's called. But there's some that you commonly see in black households. Recently, I saw one of Obama washing people's feet as if he was Jesus or something. (laughs) Oh, wow. I love it. Did that that, that type of artwork, (laughs) seeing that around you, inspire you in any way coming up? Yes. Um, I was a military brat. So until I was six, I was overseas. And my clearest memories are Greece. It's really interesting living in a place where people are speaking another, people all around you are speaking another language, right? So Mm -hmm. um, we're very young kids, so we learned the language. But in our house, and my father's friends, you know, we had a community. You know, there were a lot of Black folks in the military. We went to school on military base, that kind of thing. My father had a painting, and it's in our house still. It's in the closet. But my father, someone gifted him this painting. But there was a large nude in our living room, a Black nude. And she 
was this dark-skinned sister with a straight ponytail pulled back. And like there was this um, metal cuff in the painting that was holding her ponytail back. And she was facing to the side and she was standing in this really strange position. She had her hands on her thighs. You know, she was like almost like bent a little bit. But it's so interesting, that piece and the fact that my sister, who's three years older than me, taught me how to draw. That's how we played is she'd be like, come on, I'm gonna show you how to draw a hand. Or I'm gonna show you how to draw, you know, a tree or whatever. And and it got to the point with me and my sister where we'd be talking about something and she'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Where? And I'd be like, oh, over there by that red house. And she'd be like, draw it, draw it. What did it look like? What, you know? So that was kind of early on a way of communicating for me. And then our babysitter in Greece, Anastasia, Greek young lady, she drew. And so it was always something, you know, in me to do. It's funny. My sister taught me how to draw. She's a teacher now. Um, so I'm like, oh, she was being a teacher then, you know, she was just meeting me where I was. And it was always a part of my life as far as I can remember. And also, I do want to say this. My father was a DJ hmm. in the military. And so there was always music in our house. Like his radio show was called This Is Soul in Greece. So, you know, we cannot forget that album covers, mm-hmm. album covers. And he had so many albums. So, yes, um, I had I had really serious and intense um, visual influences. What would you say is the value of really having art in your home in terms of liberation or culture, identity? What value can the everyday person have from um, embracing Black art? Let me just say this. I went away to high school. I went to a boarding school. And most of the time at that school, there were only 200 students total. And I went straight from Compton to that boarding school. And my best friend, she was from Watts. And so she used to get Ebony and Essence magazines. And, you know, you remember how Ebony and Essence used to have the Varnett Honeywood or different artists, they would just have little tiny, you know, they just have pictures of their work in the magazine and you could maybe purchase prints or things like that. She would cut those little, so it would be like what, two by three inches, you know? She would cut those out and tape them to her door. And her door was catty corner to mine. And so that's the first thing she would see when she would go in her room, right? Is this black art. And that's what I would see going into my room. And I cannot tell you how we had each other. And that was, that was a beautiful thing. But also having that work, that's why I always say that art keeps company, mm. you know, is because I know that firsthand. You know, it lifts the spirit. It's the same as, you know, putting on your headphones when you're on a subway or when you're in a place where you you know you're not welcome. You know what I mean? And you can hear your music in your head. You're not alone. So it keeps company. And I, you know, I do think that's important. 
And just like that, we're at the end of this episode of Black History Year. This podcast is produced by Push Black, the nation's largest nonprofit black media company. At Push Black, we agree with Marcus Garvey when he said, a people without knowledge of their past, history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. And I'm guessing you probably feel like that's important too. I mean, here you are at the end of a podcast about black history. You matter. Your choice to be here matters. It lets us know that you value this work. Push Black exists because we saw we had to take matters into our own hands. You make Push Black happen with your contributions at blackhistoryyear.com. Most folks do five or ten bucks a month, but everything makes a difference. Thanks for supporting the work. The Black History Year production team includes Tariq Alani, Patrick Sanders, Albany Jones, William Anderson, Jerea Bradley, Brooke Brown, Shonda Buchanan, Brianna Lambach, Courtney Morgan, Aquia Tay, Tasha Taylor, Leslie Taylor Grover, and Darren Wallace. Producing and editing the podcast, we have Sydney Smith and Ivana Tucker. Julian Walker is the executive producer of the podcast. And I'm Jay from Push Black. Thanks for checking us out.